Good evening, Edgewater family. Um, quick announcement, sign-ups for Vacation Bible School are ending tomorrow. There are 40 spots left. Don't be that parent, okay? Don't have to tell your kids, sorry, you were number 41, you don't get to go. We're having some custom things made for them. That's why signups are ending early. So get online, get signed up. Your kids will have an absolute blast. Um, we send them home equal parts full of sugar and exhausted. So it's kind of like when we got them, where they kind of cancel each other out. Um, how many of you guys have read ahead for tonight? How many of you guys read ahead on Wednesday nights? I got to tell you, um, when I grew up, I started going to a church that taught this type of Bible teaching through the Bible on Wednesday nights, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, when I was um, late high school. And I got to tell you, it's when I really learned to study the Bible. And the way that I learned to study the Bible through that type of teaching was to read ahead of time. To like read through and be like, oh man, what are they going to talk about this next week? What's it going to say? Trying to glean some things out for myself and then coming in and listening. And man, if you approach these Wednesday nights like this, I'm telling you, you can get so much more out of them. And it'll start to teach you how to read and study the word for yourself at home. And it's a great, great thing. If you did read ahead, you saw that tonight we have a genealogy. Yes, 70 unpronounceable names, <laughs> followed by the Tower of Babel and a bunch more unpronounceable names, because we're going to do two chapters tonight. I figured we just get all the names out on one evening, okay? Then we can move on with the story. So if you are going to read ahead, grab Genesis chapter 12 for next week. It's when we meet Abram an unbelievably important chapter to understand God's plan for humanity. So let's pray, and then we'll read a whole lot of names. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction. And even as we read through this list of names this evening, and there's so much that we can learn that every time we come into your presence, humbly willing to be taught, we will learn. And I thank you that you are the great instructor. So teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we jump into this chapter 10, it's really called the Table of Nations, and it is the explosion really of humanity after the flood. And there's two things, two big things that are supposed to come across with this chapter. And the first one is this. Yes, God flooded the earth. God destroyed everyone except for the eight people on the ark, but he's not done with humanity. And as you read through this chapter, you see, oh man, the earth's repopulating again. And God is sending out people again, and he's going to continue to work with humans because I find that so comforting because there's certain times in my life where I think, man, I'm prob God's probably done with me. I probably just went through a flood because he had to wash some things out of my life that were not so good. And then I see chapter 10 and I'm like, oh, but he's got another plan and he's got more flourishing and more spreading out for me to do and we will continue to walk together. And the other really cool big theme of this chapter is this, we're all related. We're all related to Noah. We're all in this thing together. 
And someday in heaven, we will all be reunited again and there will be every race, every culture, every tongue, every tribe, and what a party that will be. Because we're all in it together. Amen? So the table of nations, here we go. Chapter 10, verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them and after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togo, that's, it's gonna happen, Togorma. The sons of Javan, Elishish, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. If you ever want to do a really deep dive into this chapter, it is absolutely fascinating and it is unparalleled in ancient literature. The accuracy of what this lays out can be traced by linguists and archeologists over and over and over again. I'll give you just a few examples from this first one. Gomer, it turns out, is the European descendants. So when it says Gomer, the son of Japheth, he traveled up to Europe. And that word Gomer actually is where we get the word Germany or Germans. Magog, I'm sure you've heard about that. Magog is the Russian people. And actually for a long time in China, the Great Wall was known as the Wall of Magog to keep out those Russian peoples. You have the Mad-Eye, which is the Medes. And all these things can be traced. Anthropologically, they can trace all of these things. You've got Kittim in here, which linguists say is another word for Cyprus. It's the people who went and, and founded Cyprus. You have Rodanim for Rhodes. You have Meshech, which is Moscow. And we don't see it because we're not linguists, but linguists say over and over again, this is unbelievable. The accuracy of this chapter is unbelievable because the Bible is true. And time and time and time again, people question it and then they come back and say, historically, it's so accurate. I mean, a couple of verses later, we're gonna read about this group of people called the Hivites. It's another word that uh, the Old Testament uses for the Hittites. Now, if you've sat or you've been in Bible study for many years, you've heard about the Hittites, right? Bible talks a lot about the Hittites. Well, for a long time, for centuries, scholars used that to say the Bible wasn't true because there were no Hittite writings found and there were no Hittite cities. And they said, this is made up until in the late 1800s, they found some Hittite writings and then some Hittite scrolls and then a few Hittite cities. It was like, oh my goodness, I guess there were a bunch of Hittites. Dang it, Bible's right again. Right, like you guys know the story of Jericho, that first walled city and how it, how it fell when they marched around the city and blew the trumpets. Archeologists, we know where Jericho is. And forever archeologists were like, see, see Jericho, there's no way. We've excavated it. There's no way the Bible's false until 1991, a Times International article said, uh-oh, found some very interesting things when we dug a little deeper in Jericho. For one, the wall fell outwards. Well, that doesn't happen. And for two, the city was still full of food. Now, how do you take a walled city? It's a siege. Walled cities don't fall. They aren't conquered when they're still full of food. And so once again, archeologists and historians had to go, oh my goodness, 
The Bible is so, so true. William Albright, not a Christian, but an archeologist, late 1800s, early 1900s, basically, he just said this, when the Bible speaks of it, we can find it. It's that accurate. So then why doesn't everybody believe? Right, like we're gonna get to the Tower of Babel in the next chapter. And the Tower of Babel is so interesting to me because if you study linguists, linguists have this very hard time, non-Christian linguists, have this very hard time understanding the origin of language. Because if you read their articles, it appears that multiple different languages with none of the same roots just sprung up all over the earth at the same time. They're like, that's crazy. It was so controversial that there was a linguist society in England that at one point in time, late 1800s, banned its members from discussing the origin of language. So they're a linguist society, and they're like, you guys can't talk about the origin. It's just too controversial. So they come up with all these theories about how things could have simultaneously popped up over here, or, or we could just believe what the Bible said and that God scattered the languages, and there they are. People are... Anthropologists are trying to figure out how is it that people came to live on six of the seven continents? Well, there could be land bridges or continental drift, or we could just believe what the Bible said. Why is it that five of those seven continents have ancient pyramids on them or ziggurats or structures, tower-like structures? Well, well, well maybe people, or, or we could just believe what the Bible said. There is so much historical truth in the word. So then why doesn't just everyone believe? Because they're never gonna find enough evidence to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Have you ever tried to prove something with evidence that was difficult? Right, so this happened to me years ago. So 15 years ago or so, I walk into the DMV and sit for a while, right? Finally get my chance, I go up, I go, I need to renew my driver's license. Okay, so what's your date of birth? What's your driver's license? I hand it to the lady and she looks at me and she goes, sir, we can't renew your driver's license. I said, why? She said, well, you have a outstanding uh, traffic citation that you never appeared in court for and there's a warrant out for your arrest. And I'm like, what? Where? She says, uh, sir, it's in Tennessee. I said, I've never been to Tennessee. She says, well, are you James M. Dennis, born 6-1-1981? Yes, I am. Well, then there's a war, but I've never been to Tennessee. She says, well, maybe there's another James M. Dennis, 6-1-1981, and this is a warrant for his arrest. I said, that's brilliant. Figure it out and then let me know. She goes, well, no, I can't, sir. You're gonna have to prove that you're not him. I said, hold on a second. You want me to prove that I'm not James M. Dennis, born 6-1-1981? That's gonna be difficult. She goes, well, you have to prove that you're not the person who got the ticket in Tennessee or we can't give you your driver's license. Okay, so I call up the DMV in Tennessee. And if you think people at the DMV in Grants Pass are unhelpful, <laughs> call up some lady in Tennessee who you can barely understand. So I call her up and I say, listen, I need to get a copy of this driver's license. She says, well, is it your driver's license? I said, no, 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 it's not my driver's license. And I explained the whole thing to her. And I said, so can I just get a copy of the driver's license? Because if I can see the picture, I'm sure that I can prove it's not me. She goes, well, I can't give you a copy of the driver's license. You might be trying to steal this person's identity. I'm like, they already gave me his identity. I'm trying to give it back. I don't want his identity. 
She said, sir, we can't give you his driver's license. I said, I can't get a car. I can't get anything. She says, no, not unless you're that person, you can't get it. Okay, no problem. Click. Call up again. Bing. Hi, my name's James Dennis, born 6-1-1981. I'd like a copy of my driver's license. She says, what's your address? My Tennessee address? Yes, sir, your address in Tennessee. I forgot, sorry, click. <laughs> so I finally, I finally found out that traffic citations are a matter of public record. So I got a copy of the traffic citation and on there the officer had filled out race and it said A for African-American. So I took it back to the DVM I'm like, there you go. I've never been to Tennessee. And I got my license renewed. And then eight years later, I went back and the whole process started all over. And I said, don't you have this in your records? She goes, we just switched records last year. So when my driver's license expired this last time, it was during COVID, I just didn't bother renewing it. <laughs> so I'm not doing it. You're never gonna find a smoking gun piece of evidence like that that will finally push you over edge the word of God. There's a lot of evidence and there's a lot of truth, but this Christian life we live takes faith. And at a certain point, you have to decide to believe. Absolutely, ask the questions, gather all the evidence. The Bible will prove itself to be true time after time after time. But if you're gonna spend your life trying to find that one smoking gun, final piece of evidence that puts an absolute nail in the coffin of beyond a shadow of a doubt, you'll, you'll never find it. Because this life takes faith. And there's a certain point where each of us as Christians have to say, I believe. I choose to believe that this is the inspired word of God and to pattern my life after it. It takes faith. And so I kind of asked myself, like, why? Why does it take faith? Why is that the system that God designed? Why isn't it just so blatantly obvious that anyone could see it and you can't prove it wrong? I don't know. I don't know, but I'll tell you my thought. I think that faith in God, the faith that is required for us to walk out this Christian life is building into each and every single one of us something we could not get in any other way and something we will need to rule and reign with King Jesus in eternity. I don't know what that thing is. That's my personal thought on it. I think that's why faith is so important. It's building into me something I couldn't get any other way, something that I'm going to need when I reign with Jesus for eternity. So let's read some more names. Verse six, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtaka. The son of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, and Calah, and Resen between Nineveh and Calah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Parushim, 
Kalishum, from whom all the Philistines came, and Kephortim. I just make them up as I go. I get like the first letter and the last letter, throw a few vowels in the middle, and let's just move on. Okay, if you're a Hebrew linguist, I don't wanna to talk to you after service. I don't. What happened in this little section? It's just going name after name after name after name after name, and it slows way down. Woo! Talks a little bit about this guy named Nimrod. Is Nimrod a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy. Well, it's been debated, but, but there's a lot of evidence to point out Nimrod's a bad guy. First off, his name actually means to rebel. So that's kind of an indication. My name means rebellion. Secondly, it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but most likely a better translation would be against the Lord. And that word mighty hunter, it doesn't mean like a guy in Southern Oregon who likes to hunt our skinny little deer, you know, the ones that are like same amount of meat as a Doberman, like those little, that's not, it's not Nimrod, right? He's not even like the big game hunter in Africa. Like Nimrod was a hunter of men. He's a warrior. He's a killer. He's a murderer. He's someone who pursues power over anything else. And then the final thing that tells us that Nimrod was not a good guy is the cities that he built. Babylon, Nineveh, those names right there should, should set something off in your mind. It would be like me telling you this. Hey, here's a guy, and he built a few countries. He built North Korea, Iran, and Russia. Is he our friend? No, not our friend. That's Nimrod. So why does the Bible slow down so much and talk about this guy? Because he's famous, and his family's famous, and it would have been a story that these slaves coming out of Egypt probably would have known because here's the story of Nimrod. And it's so interesting because people still use this story of Nimrod in a couple different ways. Scholars use it to try to say the Bible's not true. And there are some people in the Christian circles who use the story of Nimrod to say, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. What? Yeah, exactly. I love Christmas. We'll get there. So here's the story of Nimrod. Nimrod is this great hunter, marries a woman named Semiramis. While Nimrod is off on a hunting trip, Semiramis gets pregnant. Oops. How in the world could that have happened? So Semiramis tells everybody that it's actually an immaculate conception by the gods and renames herself the queen of heaven. Well, she has a son named Tammuz. Tammuz is early 30s, late 20s. He goes on a hunting trip. On this hunting trip, he is killed not a true story, sorry. Should have probably prefaced that. Myth, ancient myth. Okay, he goes on a, <laughs> that's an important fact, okay? He goes on a hunting trip, killed by a wild boar, but only stays dead for three days and then comes back to life. Interesting story. We have an immaculate conception. We have a son who was only done for, dead for three days and came back to life. What is going on here? And this is a very, very old story. You can find it in the Epic of Gilgamesh and some writings that possibly predate the earliest scrolls we have from the Old Testament. And so what happened is scholars will take this story and be like, see, the Bible just takes little pieces of other stories and copies them. Or could it be that Satan takes the real story of the Bible and copies it? Because Satan is the great counterfeiter. And this story 
is his attempt to counterfeit that thing that God promised in Genesis chapter three, that the seed of a woman would crush his head. And Satan, the great counterfeiter, is always trying to counterfeit. You see it in Revelation chapter six. Jesus comes down, what? With smoking robes and fire behind. He comes down riding on a, riding on a white horse, exactly like Jesus will do in Revelation 19. But instead of peace and prosperity and community that Jesus brings, Satan on his white horse brings famine and war and pestilence. See, our enemy is a counterfeiter and he's going to try to counterfeit culture. He's gonna try to counterfeit religion. He's gonna try to counterfeit that things that God has promised to his people. And we need to be constantly aware. How do you spot a counterfeit? It's interesting. How do you spot a counterfeit? How do you think they teach bake tellers to spot counterfeits? Do they lay out all the different possibilities for a counterfeit, get little magnifying glasses and be like, okay, look at this one. Is he? No, you know what they do? They have them count hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars of real money. Because if you handle the real thing enough times, you just know a counterfeit when you see it. This book, it's meant to be read. It's meant to be marinated in. It's meant to be meditated on. It's meant to be so much a part of your life that when you see a counterfeit, even if you don't know why, you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Something's funny about that bill. Let's set it to the side, come back and visit it later. Something's funny about that post, that meme, that piece of advice, that book that are, something's not quite right there. Let's slide it off to the side for a minute and then revisit it and stack it up against the real thing and see what it says, right? So that's Nimrod. But there's this other whole group who uses Nimrod to say that we shouldn't celebrate Easter or Christmas. Because the interesting thing about this Semiramis, this Tammuz, is they're actually the basis for many, many ancient religions. Semiramis and Tammuz in Egypt, that's Isis and Horus. In Greek, it's Aphrodite and Eros. In Rome, it's Venus and Cupid. There was even a queen mother of heaven called Shigmu in Chinese ancient religions. For the Canaanites, the ones that would, the, the that the children of Israel would have complete connection with, it's Ashtoreth and Baal. That's Semiramis and Tammuz. That's a story these people are very, very familiar with. And what God's saying is it's a fake, it's false. But just like any popular religion, people wanted to celebrate it. And so Ishtar, there was a celebration for Ishtar. It was in the springtime. And they celebrated her fertility because she became immaculately pregnant. And the way that they would celebrate Ishtar's fertility was by giving each other painted eggs and bunnies. Bunnies, because bunnies do what bunnies do. Um, I read this super interesting, this hilarious article uh, out of Schoenberg, Illinois. There was a woman who moved into a hotel room just before COVID started, and she had two rabbits. And then because of COVID, they couldn't clean her room. And little over a year later, they finally got back into her room and she was living with 47 rabbits in her hotel room, right? Can you imagine being like the hotel manager? Like, nope, no, 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 that can't be real. 
There's no way. How do you even put 47 rabbits in a hotel room? Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the celebration of Ishtar or Easter, right? And then nine months after she became pregnant, her son was born, Tammuz. Tammuz was born on December 25th. And they celebrated him by cutting down evergreen trees and bringing them into their house. It's actually in the Bible. Did you know the Christmas tree is in the Bible? It's in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse one. Let me read it to you. It's fascinating. We have to do things like this when all we have is a list of names, right? So we just bounce all over the place. Talk about cool history stories. Um, I don't, I, there we go. Hold on, Jeremiah's this way. Sorry. I'm trying to teach my kids the order of the Bible and I should learn them myself. Okay. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails and put it in their homes. This was being celebrated all the way back then. So how did Easter and Christmas become what we have today, right? So Easter and Christmas, history lesson today, guys, all right? So just, just kick back. I could just keep reading names. So this is much more fun. It happened in the Roman Empire in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan, Constantine, Emperor Constantine. You remember that the, the Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire time after time after time after time again. And then we have this Emperor Constantine and Constantine is losing the war. This is part of the decline of the Roman Empire. He's losing all these battles and he's needing more soldiers. And he has a vision one day and he sees a cross. And in this vision, supposedly it says, by this sign conquer. And so he says, hey, listen, all of Rome is Christian now. You guys should join my army. Okay, a little dubious at best. But they basically said, well, what are we supposed to do with our holidays? Like, we really like this Easter thing. We really like this Christmas thing. And they're like, no problem. Okay, Easter can be Jesus's burial and resurrection and Christmas, that can be his birth. Problem solved, you guys keep your holidays, now come into my army. So they're pagan. Does that mean we shouldn't celebrate them? Not at all, not at all. Because first off, they don't have, I mean, if you are setting up your Christmas tree and praying to Tammuz, please stop, okay? Don't do that. But participating in the, the celebrations they, they are, the way they are today is just an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. It's such a great opportunity. There are so many times in our lives where we can get hung up on details, we can get hung up on issues. Oh, they have a pagan. Why don't we just use the opportunity to talk to people about Jesus? Jesus celebrated a non-biblical feast. Did you know that? He celebrated the feast of Hanukkah. And he used it as an example to say, hey, I'm the light of the world. My favorite illustration of this is Paul. Paul is in Rome and he's walking up this hill and it's got all the gods that, no, it's Greece, sorry, he's in Athens. He's on Mars Hill and there's all these gods that the Athenians worship. And he looks at them and instead of saying, you heathens, this is ridiculous. He says, man, I can tell you guys are super religious. That's awesome. Hey, what's this one God over here? Well, that's the God that, that we don't know its name. Well, that's the God who created everything. And let me tell you about him. And his name is Jesus. And Paul would take those opportunities time and time and time again. It's the things that we should be doing. 
Or we can get all hung up on the pagan history of Easter and Christmas, or we can be like, this is an awesome time to invite my neighbors, my friends, my family, and anyone else to church, and take any opportunity we can to share the gospel. But the other thing that I think is just super cool about that is how God has redeemed it. God has taken something unbelievably pagan and made it into something beautiful. And that's the story of every single one of us, isn't it? And it is now something, these pagan holidays are now something that are the, the, number, the number one and number two times that people come to church. Like there are people who only come to church at Christmas and Easter. They're the people who always think church is full of flowers, lilies or poinsettias, right? They're the flower crowd. But they come because God has redeemed those in such a beautiful way. Something that was so pagan has now become a holy day where we sing Emmanuel, God come be with us, where we sing joy to the world and God has redeemed it. And I wonder about each and every single one of us and the pagan things we have in our past that God wants to redeem. What are the pagan things in my past that God wants to redeem to share with and push forward his gospel? Because sometimes I look at my past and the things that are pagan in them and I don't really wanna talk about them. I'd like those to just be, let's just kind of hide those away. You guys don't need to know about the pagan part of my past. We just need to focus on the good things, right? Because I was born in church. I grew up in church. I walked with the Lord. But then about 19 and so to about 22, 23, I spent a time in rebellion, smoking pot, going to parties, not, not walking, not following in rebellion. And I've never shared that because I'm not proud of it. But as I was reading through this, I was really challenged. Like, is that a pagan part of my past that God wants to use to encourage someone out here today? If it's your child going through that, don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Keep loving on them. If it's a friend, if it's a family member, if it's you right now, because I would sit in church through that season. If it's you, God wants to redeem that pagan part of your life and turn it into something beautiful that can be used because that's what our God does. He takes that which is pagan and he turns it into beauty through the work of his son. Amen? All right, so there we go. Nimrod, don't be a Nimrod, okay? Verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, that's the Hittites we talked about, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, the Hamathites, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Really interesting. We get this little tidbit in this section about Canaan, we get the borders of his territory. Why do we get the borders of his territory? We don't get the borders of anybody else's territory, just Canaan's. Well, if you remember what happened in last chapter, there was this incident with Noah and he blessed some of his sons and he cursed some of his sons. And what he said was that Canaan the descendants of Canaan 
would be servants to the descendants of Shem. Now, Shem is the next genealogy we get into, and that's where Abram comes from, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the entire nation of Israel. They're Shemites. They're Semitic. That's where we get that word. Right here, even before Abram's on the scene, even before God has made covenant, he's already alluding to the promise that he is going to make to his people. Hey, Canaan's going to serve Seth. And this is the border of Canaan's territory, the border that I'm going to eventually give to my children and call it the promised land. There is promises that God is working out for each and every single one of us before we've even met him. And I just think that's cool. Right here, we just get a little foreshadow. Hey, this is gonna be your land. The, the, the original readers would have known that. They'd have been like, oh, we're supposed to go cat tackle the land of Canaan. This kind of, oh, oh, and, and it's already been given to us. It's already been given to us. It's already been promised. What a beautiful thing. And then in verses 21 through 32, we get the genealogy of Shem. But most of that genealogy is repeated again at the end of the next chapter. So we're skipping these verses. Pick it up again in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That's, sorry, that's funny to me. Because who's ever been like, let's make a brick halfway. Let's bake some half bricks and see if we can, I don't know why it's in there. It's just, of course, you're going to burn them thoroughly. Come on, people, we're making bricks. Maybe this is just something to the brick burning slaves. I mean, they're pretty good at burning bricks. And so it's kind of like when I do shop talk with another pump guy, like maybe that's what's, I don't know if that's what's going on. Sorry, I got bored. And let's burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with the, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there, the, there Yahweh confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Tower of Babel, one of those classic Sunday school stories. So what's going on here? What did these people do that so upset God? They're just building a tower. I think that you have two groups of people in the Tower of Babel story, and I fall into both of them. And both of them are doing what God says should not be done. The first group is the religious group. The second group is the rebellion group. So we think of Babel, and we think of babbling like babbling like a child, like my 18-month-old, just blah, 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 you know. Babel actually means gate of the gods. This is more than a tower. This is a temple. 
And the idea here was this, we will build ourselves a temple and we will become gods. We will reach the height and become gods ourselves. It is man trying to reach up to God instead of waiting for God to come down to man. What's so funny is as high as man can possibly get, God still has to come a long way down. He's like, hey, what is that little thing that they're building down there? That's the other funny part of the story to me. God's like, I think they're building something. We should go down and take a look. They're like, this is the biggest thing anyone has ever built. What is that tiny little thing down there? That's how far we are away from God, people. That's how far we are away from God. You can never build a tower to him. But I think we still try, even in church. Even in church, we have our religious towers that we think get us closer to God. Tithing. Man, if I just give a certain percentage, then, then God owes me, then I'm closer to God, then, then everything will work out for me. Church attendance. And I go every Sunday, I go every Wednesday, God, you owe me. I'm gonna reach up to you. Bible reading. They're all, depending on our motives, us building towers to try to reach God. Now, every single one of those is a good thing. Tithing is excellent. Church attendance, Bible reading. But it's the motivation that matters. Because Nimrod here, most people think he's the builder of the tower. He's trying to build a tower to reach up to God. But there's another guy in the Bible who built a structure for God. It was Solomon. Solomon built a temple for God. Oh God, you're so wonderful. You're so beautiful. You've been so blessed to me. I wanna build something for you. And I think whenever I look at religious disciplines, and they're important, tithing, fasting, reading, studying, prayer, it's really important for me to examine my motivations. Because if I'm trying to do those things to reach closer to God, I'm gonna be confused and frustrated and scattered. But if I'm doing those things because I realize that through Christ Jesus, God has reached down to me, I'll be so blessed. I'll be so blessed. I give because he's been so generous. I come here because I wanna be around you guys and the saints and hear his word. I read my Bible because it's true and I wanna understand. I pray because I actually wanna talk with my father, not just check it off of a list. We don't build towers, we walk with God. That's the problem here. We were designed in Genesis chapter one and two to walk with God. And when that got broken, we've been trying to get back to him ever since. And they tried in Genesis 10 to build a tower and we still do it today. We try to build these little religious towers in our lives to get back to God. And what we really need to do is cry out for the Lord to come meet us where we are. Lord, I'm here. I can't get any closer to you. Come, be with me, walk with me, comfort me. Let's be together. But then there's the rebellious group. I don't think Nimrod was doing this to be closer to God. I think Nimrod was doing this out of rebellion. It actually means rebellion because it's really interesting what they say. It says this, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Genesis chapter nine, verse one, the commandment to Noah and his family when they get off the ark. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
No, we don't want to. That's the Tower of Babel. We don't want to. We don't want to fill the earth. We like this area here. We don't want to do what God said. We want to do it our way. And if, if God's going to flood us again, we're going to build a tower so high he can't get us. Bitumen makes it waterproof. There's a lot of people who say, this tower was to, to thumb your nose at God. You know what? We're going to do what we want. And if you try a flood again, it doesn't matter. We got a tower. We've got a tower. It's the rebellion group. And what's so interesting to me is you read through the Bible and you see through things. There are two people, two groups of people in the Bible who rebel. There are the unbelievers who rebel. And when an unbeliever rebels, what you get is the beginning of Romans where God says, eventually I'm gonna give you up to that. Eventually I will give you up to that thing you want because it will either lead to your repentance or your destruction, but I'll give it up to you. But then there's the rebellious believer. When God's son or daughter you or me is in a state of rebellion. And very often what you see in the Bible is this, when God's children rebel, God's still gonna get them to do what he asked them to do. What did he tell them to do? Scatter. What did they say? No. What did he say? <laughs> what did God tell Jonah to do? Go to Nineveh. What did Jonah say? No. What did God say? <laughs> right? God's gonna get you to do what he wants you to do. If you are a son or daughter of the king, you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. But he's gonna get you there. So often I think we misunderstand that God's instructions are imperatives. Like the other day I was going to the store and so I told my five-year-old son, I said, hey bud, grab your shoes, we're going to the store. He goes, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. I got one of those too, it's cool. So I grabbed him, not upset, get right down close to his face. Hey, bud, I'm sorry. I think you must have misunderstood me. You think that I asked if you wanted to go to the store. I did not. I told you you were going to the store. Now put your shoes on. That's God sometimes. Hey, bud, I'm sorry. You thought I asked if you wanted to be conformed to my image. I told you I was going to conform you to my image. So we can do that the easy way, or we can do that the difficult way, but you will be conformed to my image, right? I just think when I see the, the rebellion here, I just think it's so fascinating because so oftentimes that's been me. And God's gonna get me there, kicking or screaming or striding by his side. And I'll tell you, one of those is a lot more enjoyable than the other one, all right? And if God's dragging you somewhere right now, kicking and screaming, just know this, you're going to the store. You're going. You can decide how happy you wanna be, right? You can decide. That part is up to you. I don't even care if you put your shoes on, bud. I'll just throw you in the cart. We will make a scene. I am not above that. God's gonna get us to do what he wants us to do. Amen? All right, here's a bunch more names. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he had fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. 
And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Interesting side note on Eber. Eber is also sometimes written with an H, like a silent H, like we say the word herbs, but we just say herbs, even though there's an H in it. Oftentimes this was written Heber and is where most people think you get the word Hebrews. There is also an ancient Jewish tradition, fun factoid, that says that Eber was one of the, was the only person who refused to participate in the building of the Tower of Babel. And he is the only person whose language was not confused. And that Hebrew was the original language before everyone else got confused. Now, if that's a Hebrew writing that, that's pretty much like, we're awesome. So I don't know how much faith you put in that, but I just thought that was fascinating. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he had fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot, who will be a lot of trouble in the future chapters. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah and Isaac. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeas to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And finally, we get to Shem's descendants, and we drill all the way down to Abram. Father Abraham, who had many sons, who was going to take up the next large chunk of Genesis. But before we fart, there's part, there's one other thing to look at. Genesis is very interesting. It kind of speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, and then it slows down. And then it speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, and it slows down. And as you go through this book and you see that, you're supposed to take note of these things. And what's really interesting as we read through these chapters is it sped up, it sped up, it sped up, and then it spent a bunch of time on this guy named Nimrod. And then it sped up and sped up and sped up and sped up and sped up with this little story of the Babel, but then it slows way down to Abram. And we're gonna get chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter about Abram. And I think that as the original audience and as us today, we were supposed to kind of look at those two and compare and contrast them. And when we do, I think it's so interesting to see what it is that God puts a high value on. What did Nimrod do? Conquered people, built cities, built towers. I mean, he was the ultimate successful man's man. 
what does Abram have? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram believed. He had faith. And God here is going to give us a compare and contrast between these two and say, listen, this is everything the world says is important. Success and building and conquering and having a great name. Nimrod has the original meme. Like he's the very first person, like, because people would say, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's famous. Everything that the world would say is important. And yet God says, no. Don't be a Nimrod. Be an Abram. Because belief and faith is what matters. The conquering of cities, the building of dynasties, the making of your name into whatever you think it is, all those things that Nimrod represents, God says, I don't want any part of that. I want men who have faith. I want women who believe. And that is the people I'm going to build my family upon. May we be those kind of people. Amen? Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word, which is always so full. Such a blessing to get to study and to learn from and to read. So may we be men and women of faith. That our belief would be counted to us as righteousness, Lord. Turn those pagan things in our past or in our present into beautiful opportunities to share your kingdom with people, Lord. I thank you so much for this body of believers at Edgewater who come week after week into fellowship. I pray that you would bless them for their time tonight. May their days tomorrow be smooth, Lord. Work in their relationships, work in their jobs, extra measure of grace to your people tomorrow, Lord. We so enjoyed gathering with you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.